Take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we are going to start. Uh, if you look at the back of your bulletin, we have a couple of places, uh, three different passages that we will be in uh, this morning. So as you're turning there, as, as many of you know, most of you, hopefully all of you know, uh, we went in view of a call last Sunday to First Baptist Church in Alamogordo, and uh, they extended a unanimous vote to call uh, me, I almost said call us, to call me as their pastor, we accepted. So, um, so we will be, our plan is to move on February 29th. So we will be here through the end of February. Um, and uh, let me just say, uh, before we get started here, I, I know we have a month, and so uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk and gush and, and all that right now, because we, we have a month to, uh, to finish some things up. Um, let, me, let me tell you, it's been one of the great joys of my life to serve as your pastor. Um, I've loved it, and um, weren't really sure what God was up to when he started this process. We just knew that we had to follow. When, when he says go, we have to go, whether we understand it or not. Um, I, I've been reading a lot about Abraham, you know, who was 75 years old when, when God told him, I want you to pack up everything you own and, and head out. And, you know, I remember thinking, thinking there, you know, Abraham, that must have seemed absolutely crazy to him. In, in retirement, to, for God to say, it's time for you to set off and, and go somewhere. But we're told that Abraham believed God and, credited, and, and God credited it to him as righteousness. That, that's been my prayer through this whole thing, that I would go where God tells us to go and we would stay where he tells us to stay. Um, and so I know that, that there's a lot of questions. Let, let, me, let me be very honest. We are not mad. We're not upset. We're nothing. We were not looking to leave. We, we simply felt the call of God to, to follow, to, to go. And we follow where he leads. So um, I know we have a month to, um, to, to visit, to cry. There's going to be some cry. There's going to be some laughing. Um, but I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has the next man waiting in the wings to lead this church to the next step as well. And so your responsibility is the same as ours is. We go where God tells us to go. Follow where he tells us to follow. And trust that he's in control and his plan is good. His plan is perfect if we will be obedient and follow after him. So now that I've brought the room down, let's go to Acts chapter 4. We've been looking so far at, at who we are as a local church. And, and I think in a lot of ways, this is um, not knowing this at the time that I was planning it, but the, the fact that this is kind of the last big series that I'm taking us through is, is going to mean a lot. Um, because it's important that we understand who we are as a church. Um, and, and I'm so excited for some of the, the things that are happening, um, that, that especially this, this uh, group that, that Cassie and Kelly have been talking about getting together. I'm, I'm so excited to see that, to see that going forward. Um, and, and that that doesn't depend on a pastor being in place to, to, to continue the ministry of the church. That's so important that the people of God take up the mantle of the ministry. Because that's what it means to be a part of the body. We've talked about this a lot. This morning we looked at one, we're going to look at one holy apostolic church. Now to be holy simply means set apart. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Apostolic is a word that we don't use a whole lot in, in Baptist circles. 
And that simply means uh, to be an apostle means to be one who is sent. As the body of Christ, as believers and followers of Christ, we have our commission where Christ said, go into all the nations, baptizing them, making disciples of them. That is our mission. So we have been sent out into the world as people who are not of the world to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the message of Christ. And so that's what we mean this morning. One church. We talked about what it means to be the body of Christ. Now we're talking about what it means to be united as the church together, as a, as a people set apart and a people sent out. And so if you will turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and stand together as we read this verse, and then we will pray. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your church, as a people who are set apart for you and sent out into the world from you. Will you show us what that means this morning, how we, as a body gathered, can live as your people, your church? Open your word to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, the first thing that we see here is that the believers were of one heart and mind. We are, uh, one, we, we are of one heart and mind. That, that means that we should be united in our understanding of who Christ is, and our understanding of the gospel, and in our understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, for the early church, look at what that meant for them. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, that's saying something, because at the beginning of Acts, we're told that 120 people were gathered together. They were scared. They didn't really know what was going to happen. They're still trying to wrap their minds around all that Jesus had done, and then his his death and his resurrection 40 days earlier, and then finally his ascension and he, when he went back to the Father. So all the believers were gathered together at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 2, trying to figure out what on earth they do now. And on that day, as they're gathered together, the Holy Spirit falls on them. We're told that they start speaking in other languages. And people begin to look at them, wondering what's, what's happening and and. Throughout the course of the day, Peter begins to preach. And, and if you remember what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are added to their number. They went from 120 to, to 3,120 people in a day. And now here we are a couple of chapters later, and it says that they were all of one heart and mind. That none of them said that the things that they had or the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, let me break this down really quickly, okay? I'm not taught, this is not socialism. This is not some government-mandated um, thing where you're going to give up 90% of your income. I'm not trying to make a dig at anybody, so just relax, okay? You're not voting tomorrow night. So, um, but th this wasn't government-mandated. This wasn't somebody saying, this is how you will live, because you cannot mandate generosity, this was the believers realizing who they were in Christ, realizing that they were connected to their other brothers and sisters in Christ, and believing that God had called them to be generous, to meet the needs of one another in the church. Now, 
this is really funny, but maybe you've heard this joke as well, that um, particularly when we see that they were of one heart and mind, there was such a large group of them gathered. Maybe you've heard before, too, that where two Baptists are gathered together, there are at least three opinions. Um, okay. Maybe your experience is different. That, that kind of holds true in my, in my uh, 30-something years of being in Baptist churches, right? We, so, so what does it mean that they're of one heart and mind? How did they get there? Well, we see that at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which we've covered many times during my time here, and you'll probably hear it more. What we're told in that passage is that they, they met together constantly. They were in each other's homes. They met together in the temple where they gathered to worship together. They, they spent time in prayer. Now, here, here's a really great thing about prayer. It's impossible... Or it's very difficult, let me say that, it's very difficult to continually be angry and to have bitterness towards someone whom you are constantly praying for. It's very difficult to be bitter or angry towards someone whom you are constantly praying for. They were united around what they had seen God do in and through them. And that caused them to care for one another and to look after one another and to meet the needs of one another. Now, again, I'm, I'm not trying to harp on, on politics, but, but folks, part of the reason our country is in the, the mess that it's in, that we have government aid programs that are broken and, and don't work the way they were designed to is because that was never the government's job. It was, it was the church's job to take care of one another and to take care of the poor. That, that was mandated to the church, not to the government. And when we abdicated that to the, to the government, and that, that happened long, long ago, so, so don't, don't, let me, don't, don't hear me say that that happened in the last 15, 20 years. I think we're talking 80, 90 years ago. We, we, the church was content to let the government take over. Uh, that's led us, I think, to, to where we are today because the church has, has um, abdicated her responsibility to someone that it was never meant to go to. And so I wonder what it would look like if the church took this back and said, we will take care of the poor. We will take care of the sick. If we went back to churches founding hospitals to, to care for the, the sick and the dying the way that it was originally meant to be. If the church took up the mantle of education again. You know, you have some we have some extremely liberal people in, in this country who don't like to admit that places like Yale and Harvard were founded by believers because they valued education. And now they've all but kicked God out of their, uh, of their institutions because he doesn't fit their liberal mindset. But what would happen if the church took that up again and said, this is our responsibility and we will, we will carry that on? Now, now go, if we go back to this image of the church as the body, and we talk about sharing resources and meeting needs. In your own body, just think about what would happen if your heart decided to hoard all of the blood in your body. Or if your lungs decided to hoard all of the oxygen in your body. I'm, to, to be honest, I'm not really sure what that would look like. I'm not really sure we want to see what that would look like because it would end very poorly. It would kill the body. And, and here's the reality. In the church, if we don't, if those who are able, do not sacrificially give and sacrificially meet the needs of others, it will kill 
the fellowship of the church. Because we're designed as a body where the members help the other members. That's the way it's designed. That's what it means to be of one heart and mind, that we take care of one another. We meet the needs that each other has. So that's the first thing. The second thing, we are called to be holy. Flip with me a few pages back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Um, think there's something here, I think, to be said about greatness. Now, now, really quickly, let me just tell you. As a kid, when I was about Noah's age, 8, 9, 10, I just knew that one day I would play for the Dallas Cowboys. Okay, I just, I knew it. It was, it was in my bones that one day I was going to play for the Cowboys. Now, the last 20 years have not been kind to the Cowboys fans, but... If you remember in the early 90s, nobody else could touch them. They were, they were outstanding. They, they were that good. Won three Super Bowls in a span of four years. Um, and so, so as a Cowboys fan, man, that, that was just the, I mean, that was the biggest thing. Now, about the fifth grade, I began to realize that I had grown about all I was going to grow. And, and I began to realize that my stature and my athletic ability were probably not going to lend themselves to NFL talent, okay? Um, so, uh, although I, I still think that there were a couple of years in the early 2000s where I could have made a roster spot, okay? That's how bad they were in those, in those, in those years. I, th- I think I would have had a chance. Um, but here's the thing. I was mesmerized by by Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, Emmett Smith, these, these guys who just seem larger than life on the football field. Now, now, I will still say, regardless of how you feel about the Cowboys, whether you're a 49ers fan or a Raiders fan or a Chiefs fan or whatever you are, Broncos, those guys were legit, y'all. Those guys are three of the best who ever played together, and I'll argue that to my grave. Um, and so they were great. There was something special about them. So, you know, every schoolyard quarterback, at least in Texas, pretended he was Troy Aikman. Every junior high running back tried to run like Emmett Smith and tried to make the cuts that, that he made. And that's the thing about greatness, that people want to experience it. People want to be like the great ones. We revere those people that we consider great. In our nation today, we do the same thing. Names like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, are, are held up to, to a high standard of what it means to be great leaders. And so when we say that we're called to be holy, we're call, it's saying that we're called to be like God. We are to revere God above all else. We're to strive to be like him. We've been set apart to be like him. Now, now really quickly, to be holy does not mean that you are to be holier than thou. There's a difference. Okay? To be holy does not mean that you're to have an attitude that you are holier than thou. Because somebody who's holier than thou wants to look 
holy. And they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that people see themselves as holy. They'll, they'll prop themselves up by comparing how good they are to how bad someone else is. And we've, if you've spent any time in church whatsoever, you've probably experienced some of that attitude. Well, if you're going to be a part of our church, you dress a certain way, you talk a certain way, you, you do certain things, you don't do certain things, you don't dress a certain way, you don't talk a certain way. And, and we, we attach these requirements to, uh, to what it means to be a Christian, what it means to look and act and, and sound like a Christian. Now, not all, not all that's bad, okay, because hopefully as a believer, there are certain things that you don't do and certain things that you don't say on a regular basis, or at least God is shaping you and molding you into that. But to be holy, to understand what it means to be holy is to understand that my standard is not my next door partying neighbor. And as long as I feel better about my life than I feel about their life, I, I'm, I'm doing good and I'm on the road to, to, to holiness. The standard for holiness is a perfect, almighty God. He's your standard. No one else is the standard. And that understanding leaves no room for any kind of arrogance, any kind of inflated ego. Because it's a humbling thing to hear a perfect, almighty, awesome, holy God say, as he does here, be holy, for I am holy. That should humble us, and that should lead us to the realization that I can't do that. And, and the answer from the Bible is, you're absolutely right. You can't do that. Not on your own. But the forgiveness of sins made available through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, that he died in your place and in my place, through that, God grants us positional holiness, where he says, you are covered in the blood of Christ. Or to use the biblical term for that, it's justified, justification. The best way I've ever heard that described is to be justified means it's made just if I'd never sinned. Covered in the blood of Christ, covered in his sacrificial death, and made holy in God's eyes. Now, there's, there's some tension there, because if that's, your, if that's your position as a believer, you might look at your life and say, well, my, my life doesn't look very holy, to which comes what we call the sanctification process, that process where God continually transforms us into the image of Christ, where he's got to chisel some things away that will never be completed here on earth won't be completed until that day when either your time on this life is over and you stand in the presence of God or when Christ Jesus cracks open the sky and comes back. So even though we won't ever get there in this life, the Bible promises that one day in the presence of Almighty God in heaven, we will. We will experience that as reality. And we have the opportunity to see shades of that eternal reality here and now. So we're one in heart and mind. We're called to be holy. And the third thing is this, to be one church that is holy, that's set apart, and that is sent out, simply what apostolic means. We are to contend for the faith of the apostles. Turn with me 
to the book of Jude. Second to last book in the Bible, Jude is just one passage, one, one chapter. Pretty short, but this is a rich little book. Kind of sad I hadn't had the opportunity to preach through this one yet because I've got the perfect sermon series title. Anybody guess? Hey, Jude. Oh, come on. Don't, don't, no. Yeah, you can hear the groans. Oh. We contend for the faith of the apostles. This this is a great little book. Look with me at verse 3, Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this may seem like kind of an odd way to start out his book, right? That's verse 3. So basically, he says, uh, hi, how you doing? Good, nice to write to you. Now, I'm writing to you so that you will contend for the faith of the apostles. I I wanted to tell you something else, but I found it necessary to say this. And here's why, because in verse 4, we read this, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we get the sense here that the Jude wanted to write on another topic. He had something else that he really wanted to say for them, or to them. But as he began to hear these stories about these false teachers who were creeping in and beginning to lead people astray, he said, I felt it necessary to tell you that you must contend for the faith of the saints. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he says this, this is worth fighting for. This church where Jude is writing was being infiltrated by false teachers. And Jude says this, he says to contend, or mine says, uh, or another, another word for contend could be struggle, fight for this. And let's be honest, sometimes maintaining the faith, particularly in the world in which we live, where immorality seems to have found a, a fast track all around us, maintaining the faith, contending for the faith is a struggle, is it not? Because we live in a world that doesn't understand what we believe and that will call you arrogant and bigoted when, when you dare say, I believe that, that this book is the word of God, it's the final word of God, and Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father because of what this book says. We're even seeing in some of our mainline denominations, folks who are beginning to argue that the God of Islam, Allah, is really the same God as Christianity. We're being told that to say otherwise is, is hatred and bigoted. And, and let me just tell you, regardless of what happens in November, and I believe elections are important, I believe elections have consequences, and I believe you should vote. I'll never tell you how to vote, I'll tell you to go vote. 
But getting a Republican or a Democrat or, or who, who we think would be the perfect candidate in the White House is not going to fix the problems in the world because that's not where they started. As I said earlier, I think, I think a lot of the problems we're experiencing in our world is because folks in the church house refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord in their lives. And then we're appalled when the world is, is on a fast track to hell. And so what, what Jude is saying here, he said, listen, there are some hills that are worth dying on. Now let me be real, real clear about a couple that I don't think are. Your preferred style of music is not a hill to die on. That's, that's not a here I stand, and, 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 and thank you for not being that church. Oh, man, I'm so grateful. Oh. And he's happy, too, that you're not that church. He really, <laughs> I, thank you so much. You know, I, I've, I've known churches, as soon as you bring drums in, you split the church, and, and, and thank you so much for not being that. But, folks, preferences are not hills to die on. Color of carpet in the sanctuary is not a hill to die on. Even, even some, some pickier things, um, views of the end times about what exactly is going to happen and what that's all going to look like, I, I don't think those are hills to die on. I don't think that's, that's a reason to leave a church or to declare a church full of, full of heretics. And, and It's not that big a deal. Here are some of the things that are worth dying for. The belief in the authority of the Word of God, that's a hill to die on for a believer. That's, that's an area that we will fight for. And I'm so glad to be part of a denomination that's unwilling to waver on the authority of God's word. Even when it comes in the form of having to take some stances on social issues that aren't very popular. To say that we believe this is the final authority for our lives and our churches is a belief to fight for. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The belief that one day Christ is returning to judge the living and the dead. Now again, I don't think you've got to, we can narrow that down to say when he's going to come or exactly what that's going to look like, but we, we hold to the belief, the promise that Christ made that one day he is returning. I have a quote here from, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slaughter this guy's name, so I, I apologize in advance. His, his name is Tabidi Anyabwile. Um, interesting story. If you have a chance to read up on him, please do. His original name was Ron Burns. He and his wife converted to Islam in 1991. They, be, they became Muslims. And God, through his rich grace and mercy, saved them out of Islam through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Tabidi became, uh, eventually became a staff member at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Then he went and he pastored First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. Now that's suffering for Jesus, folks. <laughs> that's a tough assignment, right? Now. This is what he said, because I love this. He says, The greatest need in the church today is the gospel. 
The gospel is not only news for a perishing world. It is the message that forms, sustains, and animates the church. Look at this. Apart from the gospel, the church has nothing to say. Apart from the gospel, the church has nothing to say. That is what we contend for. The gospel. And if we lose sight of that, we can get distracted in all kinds of things. We can get, we can get sucked into one political party or another. And we can start yelling and we can start shouting. We can become angry Christians or we can do just the opposite and become uh, just kind of bystanders as we watch the church decline and, and the world around us go on a fast track to hell. But the gospel demands a couple of things. It demands, first of all, a response to in our own lives. We understand that we are sinners saved by grace, eliminating arrogance, eliminating ego. And it demands that we share that with other people. That we share it with a lost and dying world. And of all the things that we could say, of all the things that we could do, if we spend as much time sharing the gospel as we do sharing about our favorite sports team or about our political thoughts and about which candidate we like and which candidate we think has awful hair and is full of hot air. I won't say who. I won't mention names. No names. Folks, what if we put as much effort into the gospel as we put into those things? One of my favorite stories, um, Karl Barth, who was a great German philosopher during the 30s and 40s, wrote volumes um, that theology students today still have to try to wade through and, and understand. One of, the, one of the great thinkers of Christianity in the last 200 years, near the end of his life, as he was, as he was nearing death, somebody asked him, Dr. Barth, what's the greatest thought you've ever had regarding God? And, and all your years of studying and all the books that you've written and, and all the deep theological truths that you've shared, what's the greatest thought that you would share with someone? And he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so simple. Sometimes we complicate it. And I love that. The, the first song that I learned as a kid, the first song I remember learning as a kid, the greatest theological truth in the world. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what it means to be a church that is holy, set apart, and apostolic or sent out. We understand that we've been saved by grace through faith, and we want to share that with the world. Pray with me. Father, I thank you this morning for these great truths that we've looked at, that we are a people called to meet the needs of one another because we are connected to you, the head of the church. That we're called to be holy, a people set apart for your purposes who live in the world but who do not live according to the world. We don't live according to the value systems that the world has. 
And we know we live in a world that's increasingly hostile to the things of God, increasingly hostile to, to those of us who would claim to be disciples of Christ and, and those of us who would claim to believe in the, the Bible as the final authority for life and faith. But, oh God, let us stand firm in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Your word that you inspired men of old to write down so that we would still have your words for us today. Above all, God, may we never get over the simple reality those words that we sang as children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Thank you for who you are and what you've done in each of our lives. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.